Section 2 of the $30,000 Bequest and Other Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The $30,000 Bequest and Other Stories by Mark Twain. Section 2. The $30,000 Bequest, Part 2. Chapter 5. The celebration went off well. The friends were all present, both the young and the old. Among the young were Flossie and Gracie Peanut and their brother Adelbert, who was a rising young journeyman tinner, also Hosanna Dilkins, Jr., journeyman plasterer, just out of his apprenticeship. For many months Adelbert and Hosanna had been showing interest in Gwendolyn and Clytemnestra Foster, and the parents of the girls had noticed this with private satisfaction but they suddenly realized now that that feeling had passed. They recognized that the changed financial conditions had raised up a social bar between their daughters and the young mechanics. The daughters could now look higher, and must. Yes, must. They need marry nothing below the grade of lawyer or merchant. Papa and Mama would take care of this. There must be no misalliances. However, these thinkings and projects of theirs were private, and did not show on the surface, and therefore threw no shadow upon the celebration. What showed upon the surface was a serene and lofty contentment, and a dignity of carriage and gravity of deportment, which compelled the admiration and likewise the wonder of the company. All noticed it, and all commented upon it, but none was able to divine the secret of it. It was a marvel and a mystery." Three several persons remarked, without suspecting what clever shots they were making, it's as if they'd come into property. That was just it, indeed. Most mothers would have taken hold of the matrimonial matter in the old regulation way. They would have given the girls a talking to, of a solemn sort and untactful, a lecture calculated to defeat its own purpose by producing tears and secret rebellion and the said mothers would have further damaged the business by requesting the young mechanics to discontinue their attentions. But this mother was different. She was practical. She said nothing to any of the young people concerned, nor to anyone else except Sally. He listened to her and understood, understood and admired. He said, I get the idea. Instead of finding fault with the samples on view, thus hurting feelings and obstructing trade without occasion, you merely offer a higher class of goods for the money, and leave nature to take her course. It's wisdom, Alec, solid wisdom, and sound as a nut. Who's your fish? Have you nominated him yet? No, she hadn't. They must look the market over, which they did. To start with, they considered and discussed Brandish, rising young lawyer, and Fulton, rising young dentist. Sally must invite them to dinner, but not right away, there was no hurry, Alec said. Keep an eye on the pair and wait, nothing would be lost by going slowly in so important a matter. It turned out that this was wisdom too, for inside of three weeks Alec made a wonderful strike which swelled her imaginary hundred thousand to four hundred thousand of the same quality. She and Sally were in the clouds that evening. For the first time they introduced champagne at dinner. Not real champagne, but plenty real enough for the amount of imagination expended on it. It was Sally that did it, and Alec weakly submitted. 
At bottom both were troubled and ashamed, for he was a high-up son of temperance, and at funerals wore an apron which no dog could look upon and retain his reason and his opinion. And she was a WCTU, with all that that implies of boiler-iron virtue and unendurable holiness. But there it was. The pride of riches was beginning its disintegrating work. They had lived to prove, once more, a sad truth which had been proven many times before in the world, that whereas principle is a great and noble protection against showy and degrading vanities and vices, poverty is worth six of it. More than four hundred thousand dollars to the good. They took up the matrimonial matter again. Neither the dentist nor the lawyer was mentioned. There was no occasion. They were out of the running. Disqualified. They discussed the son of the pork-packer and the son of the village banker. But finally, as in the previous case, they concluded to wait and think, and go cautiously and sure. Luck came their way again. Alec, ever watchful, saw a great and risky chance, and took a daring flyer. A time of trembling, of doubt, of awful uneasiness followed, for non-success meant absolute ruin and nothing short of it. Then came the result, and Alec, faint with joy, could hardly control her voice when she said, The suspense is over, Sally, and we are worth a cold million. Sally wept for gratitude and said, O oh, Electra, jewel of women, darling of my heart, we are free at last, we roll in wealth, we need never scrimp again. It's a case for Vave Clicquot. And he got out a pint of spruce beer and made sacrifice, he saying, damn the expense, and she rebuking him gently with reproachful but humid and happy eyes. They shelved the pork-packer's son and the banker's son, and sat down to consider the governor's son and the son of the congressman. CHAPTER Six. It were a weariness to follow in detail the leaps and bounds the foster-fictitious finances took from this time forth. It was marvelous, it was dizzying, it was dazzling. Everything Alec touched turned to fairy gold, and heaped itself glittering toward the firmament. Millions upon millions poured in, and still the mighty stream flowed thundering along, still its vast volume increased. Five millions, ten millions, twenty, thirty... Was there never to be an end? Two years swept by in a splendid delirium, the intoxicated fosters scarcely noticing the flight of time. They were now worth three hundred million dollars. They were in every board of directors of every prodigious combine in the country. And still as time drifted along, the millions went on piling up, five at a time, ten at a time, as fast as they could tally them off, almost. The three hundred double itself, then doubled again, and yet again, and yet once more. Twenty-four hundred millions! The business was getting a little confused. It was necessary to take an account of stock and straighten it out. The Fosters knew it, they felt it, they realized that it was imperative, but they also knew that to do it properly and perfectly, the task must be carried to a finish without a break when once it was begun. A ten hours job! and where could they find ten leisure hours in a bunch? Sally was selling pins and sugar and calico all day and every day. Alec was cooking and washing dishes and sweeping and making beds all day and every day with none to help, for the daughters were being saved up for high society. 
the Fosters knew there was one way to get the ten hours, and only one. Both were ashamed to name it, each waited for the other to do it. Finally Sally said, Somebody's got to give in, it's up to me. Consider that I've named it, never mind pronouncing it out loud. Alec colored, but was grateful. Without further remark, they fell, fell and broke the Sabbath, for that was their only free ten-hour stretch. It was but another step in the downward path. Others would follow. Vast wealth has temptations which fatally and surely undermine the moral structure of persons not habituated to its possession. They pulled down the shades and broke the Sabbath. With hard and patient labor, they overhauled their holdings and listed them. And a long-drawn procession of formidable names it was, starting with the railway systems, steamer lines, standard oil, ocean cables, diluted telegraph, and all the rest, and winding up with Klondike, De Beers, Tammany Graft, and shady privileges in the post office department. Twenty-four hundred millions, and all safely planted in good things, gilt-edged and interest-bearing. Income, one hundred twenty million dollars a year. Alec fetched a long purr of soft delight and said, Is it enough? It is, Alec. What shall we do? Stand pat. Retire from business? That's it. I am agreed. The good work is finished. We will take a long rest and enjoy the money. Good. Alec. Yes, dear? How much of the income can we spend? The whole of it. It seemed to her husband that a ton of chains fell from his limbs. He did not say a word. He was happy beyond the power of speech. After that they broke the Sabbaths right along as fast as they turned up. It is the first wrong step that counts. Every Sunday they put in the whole day after morning service on inventions, inventions of ways to spend the money. They got to continuing this delicious dissipation until past midnight, and at every seance Alec lavished millions upon great charities and religious enterprises, and Sally lavished like sums upon matters to which, at first, he gave definite names. Only at first. Later the names gradually lost sharpness of outline, and eventually faded into sundries, thus becoming entirely, but safely, undescriptive. For Sally was crumbling. The placing of these millions added seriously and most uncomfortably to the family expenses in tallow candles. For a while Alec was worried, then after a little she ceased to worry, for the occasion of it was gone. She was pained, she was grieved, she was ashamed, but she said nothing and so became an accessory. Sally was taking candles, he was robbing the store. It is ever thus. Vast wealth, to the person unaccustomed to it, is a bane. It eats into the flesh and bone of his morals. When the Fosters were poor, they could have been trusted with untold candles. But now they, but let us not dwell upon it. From candles to apples is but a step. Sally got to taking apples, then soap, then maple sugar, then canned goods, then crockery. How easy it is to go from bad to worse when once one has started upon a downward course. Meantime, other effects had been milestoning the course of the Foster's splendid financial march. The fictitious brick dwelling had given place to an imaginary granite one 
with a checkerboard mansard roof. In time this one disappeared and gave place to a still grander home, and so on and so on. Mansion after mansion, made of air, rose, higher, broader, finer, and each in its turn vanished away, until now in these latter great days our dreamers were in fancy housed, in a distant region, in a sumptuous vast palace which looked out from a leafy summit upon a noble prospect of vale and river, and receding hills, steeped in tinted mists, and all private, all the property of the dreamers, a palace swarming with liveried servants, and populous with guests of fame and power, hailing from all the world's capitals, foreign and domestic. This palace was far, far away toward the rising sun, immeasurably remote, astronomically remote, in Newport, Rhode Island, holy land of high society, ineffable domain of the American aristocracy. As a rule, they spent a part of every Sabbath, after morning service, in this sumptuous home, the rest of it they spent in Europe, or in dawdling around in their private yacht. Six days of sordid and plodding fact-life at home on the ragged edge of lakeside and straitened means, the seventh in fairyland, such had been their program and their habit. In their sternly restricted fact-life they remained as of old, plodding, diligent, careful, practical, economical. They stuck loyally to the little Presbyterian church, and labored faithfully in its interests, and stood by its high and tough doctrines with all their mental and spiritual energies. But in their dream-life they obeyed the invitations of their fancies, whatever they might be, and howsoever the fancies might change. Alec's fancies were not very capricious, and not frequent, but Sally's scattered a good deal. Alec and her dream-life went over to the Episcopal camp, on account of its large official titles. Next she became high church, on account of the candles and shows, and next she naturally changed to Rome, where there were cardinals and more candles. But these excursions were a nothing to Sally's. His dream-life was a glowing and continuous and persistent excitement, and he kept every part of it fresh and sparkling by frequent changes, the religious part along with the rest. He worked his religions hard, and changed them with his shirt. The liberal spendings of the fosters upon their fancies began early in their prosperities, and grew in prodigality step by step with their advancing fortunes. In time they became truly enormous. Alec built a university or two per Sunday, also a hospital or two, also a Roten hotel or so, also a batch of churches, now and then a cathedral, and once, with untimely and ill-chosen playfulness, Sally said, It was a cold day when she didn't ship a cargo of missionaries to persuade unreflecting Chinamen to trade off twenty-four-carat Confucianism for counterfeit Christianity. This rude and unfeeling language hurt Alec to the heart, and she went from the presence crying. That spectacle went to his own heart, and in his pain and shame he would have given worlds to have those unkind words back. She had uttered no syllable of reproach, and that cut him. Not one suggestion that he look at his own record, and she could have made, oh, so many and such blistering ones. Her generous silence brought a swift revenge, for it turned his thoughts upon himself, it summoned before him a spectral procession, 
a moving vision of his life as he had been leading it these past few years of limitless prosperity, and as he sat there reviewing it, his cheeks burned and his soul was steeped in humiliation. Look at her life, how fair it was, and tending ever upward, and look at his own, how frivolous, how charged with mean vanities, how selfish, how empty, how ignoble, and its trend never upward, but downward, ever downward. He instituted comparisons between her record and his own. He had found fault with her, so he mused, he. And what could he say for himself? When she built her first church, what was he doing? Gathering other base multimillionaires into a poker club, defiling his own palace with it, losing hundreds of thousands to it at every sitting, and sillily vain of the admiring notoriety it made for him. When she was building her first university, what was he doing? Polluting himself with a gay and dissipated secret life in the company of other fast bloods, multimillionaires in money and paupers in character. When she was building her first foundling asylum, what was he doing? Alas! When she was projecting her noble society for the purifying of the sex, what was he doing? Ah, what indeed! When she and the WCTU and the woman with the hatchet, moving with resistless march, were sweeping the fatal bottle from the land, what was he doing? Getting drunk three times a day. When she, builder of a hundred cathedrals, was being gratefully welcomed and blessed in papal Rome, and decorated with the golden rose which she had so honorably earned, what was he doing? Breaking the bank at Monte Carlo. He stopped. He could go no farther. He could not bear the rest. He rose up with a great resolution upon his lips. This secret life should be revealing and confessed. No longer would he live it clandestinely. He would go and tell her all. And that was what he did. He told her all, and wept upon her bosom, wept and moaned and begged for her forgiveness. It was a profound shock, and she staggered under the blow, but he was her own, the core of her heart, the blessing of her eyes, her all in all, she could deny him nothing, and she forgave him. She felt that he could never again be quite to her what he had been before. She knew that he could only repent and not reform. Yet all morally defaced and decayed as he was, was he not her own, her very own, the idol of her deathless worship? She said she was his serf, his slave, and she opened her yearning heart and took him in. CHAPTER Seven. One Sunday afternoon, some time after this, they were sailing the summer seas in their dream-yacht, and reclining in lazy luxury under the awning of the after-deck. There was silence, for each was busy with his own thoughts. These seasons of silence had insensibly been growing more and more frequent of late. The old nearness and cordiality were waning. Sally's terrible revelation had done its work. Alec had tried hard to drive the memory of it out of her mind, but it would not go, and the shame and bitterness of it were poisoning her gracious dream life. She could see now, on Sundays, that her husband was becoming a bloated and repulsive thing. She could not close her eyes to this, and in these days she no longer looked at him, Sundays, when she could help it. But she, was she herself without blemish? Alas, she knew she was not. She was keeping a secret from him, 
she was acting dishonorably toward him, and many a pang it was costing her. She was breaking the compact and concealing it from him. Under strong temptation, she had gone into business again. She had risked their whole fortune in a purchase of all the railway systems and coal and steel companies in the country on a margin, and she was now trembling every Sabbath hour, lest through some chance word of hers he find it out. In her misery and remorse for this treachery, she could not keep her heart from going out to him in pity. She was filled with compunctions to see him lying there, drunk and contented, and never suspecting, never suspecting, trusting her with a perfect and pathetic trust, and she holding over him by a thread a possible calamity of so devastating a, say, Alec, the interrupting words brought her suddenly to herself. She was grateful to have that persecuting subject from her thoughts, and she answered, with much of the old-time tenderness in her tone, Yes, dear. Do you know, Alec, I think we are making a mistake. That is, you are. I mean about the marriage business. He sat up, fat and froggy and benevolent, like a bronze Buddha, and grew earnest. Consider, it's more than five years. You've continued the same policy from the start, with every rise always holding on for five points higher. Always when I think we are going to have some weddings, you see a bigger thing ahead, and I undergo another disappointment. I think you are too hard to please. Some day we'll get left. First we turned down the dentist and the lawyer. That was all right, it was sound. Next we turned down the banker's son and the pork butcher's heir right again and sound. Next we turned down the congressman's son and the governor's, right as a trivet, I confess it. Next the senator's son and the son of the vice-president of the United States, perfectly right, there's no permanency about those little distinctions. Then you went for the aristocracy, and I thought we had struck oil at last. Yes, we would take the plunge at the four hundred and pull in some ancient lineage, venerable, holy, ineffable, mellow with the antiquity of a hundred and fifty years, disinfected of the ancestral odors of salt-cod and pelts all of a century ago, and unsmirched by a day's work since, and then, why, then the marriages, of course. But no, along comes a pair of real aristocrats from Europe, and straight away you throw over the half-breeds. It was awfully discouraging, Alec. Since then, what a procession! You turned down the baronets for a pair of barons. You turned down the barons for a pair of viscounts, the viscounts for a pair of earls, the earls for a pair of marquises, the marquises for a brace of dukes. Now, Alec, cash in. You've played the limit. You've got a job lot of four dukes under the hammer, of four nationalities, all sound in the wind and limb and pedigree, all bankrupt and in debt up to the ears. They come high, but we can afford it. Come, Alec, don't delay any longer. Don't keep up the suspense. Take the whole layout and leave the girls to choose. Alec had been smiling blandly and contentedly all through this arraignment of her marriage policy, a pleasant light, as of triumph, with perhaps a nice surprise peeping out through it, rose in her eyes, and she said as calmly as she could, Sally, what would you say to royalty? Prodigious! Poor man, it knocked him silly, and he fell over the garboard stake and barked his shin on the catheads. 
He was dizzy for a moment, then he gathered himself up and limped over and sat down by his wife, and beamed his old-time admiration and affection upon her in floods, out of his bleary eyes. "'By George!' he said fervently. "'Alec, you are great, the greatest woman in the whole earth. I can't ever learn the whole size of you. I can't ever learn the immeasurable deeps of you. Here I've been considering myself qualified to criticize your game. I! Why, if I had stopped to think, I'd have known you had a lone hand up your sleeve. Now, dear heart, I'm all red-hot impatience. Tell me about it. The flattered and happy woman put her lips to his ear and whispered a princely name. It made him catch his breath. It lit his face with exultation. Land, he said. It's a stunning catch. He's got a gambling hall and a graveyard and a bishop and a cathedral, all his very own and all gilt-edged five hundred percent stock, every detail of it, the tidiest little property in Europe, and that graveyard, it's the selectest in the world, none but suicides admitted. Yes, sir, and the free list suspended, too, all the time. There isn't much land in the principality, but there's enough. Eight hundred acres in the graveyard and forty-two outside. It's a sovereignty, that's the main thing, land's nothing. There's plenty land, Sahara's drugged with it. Alec glowed, she was profoundly happy. She said, Think of it, Sally. It is a family that has never married outside the royal and imperial houses of Europe. Our grandchildren will sit upon thrones. True as you live, Alec, and bear scepters, too, and handle them as naturally and nonchalantly as I handle a yardstick. It's a grand catch, Alec, He's corralled, isn't he? Can't get away? You didn't take him on a margin? No, trust me for that. He's not a liability. He's an asset. So is the other one. Who is it, Alec? His Royal Highness Sigmason Siegfried Larenfeld Dickenspell Schwarzenberg Bloodwurst, hereditary Grand Duke of Katzenyammer. No, you can't mean it. It's as true as I'm sitting here. I give you my word she answered. His cup was full, and he hugged her to his heart with rapture, saying, How wonderful it all seems, and how beautiful! It's one of the oldest and noblest of the three hundred and sixty-four ancient German principalities, and one of the few that was allowed to retain its royal estate when Bismarck got done trimming them. I know that farm, I've been there. It's got a rope-walk and a candle-factory and an army, standing army infantry and cavalry, three soldier and a horse. Alec, it's been a long wait and full of heartbreak and hope deferred, but God knows I am happy now, happy and grateful to you, my own, who have done it all. When is it to be? Next Sunday. Good, and we'll want to do these weddings up in the very regalist style that's going. It's properly due to the royal quality of the parties of the first part. Now, as I understand it, there is only one kind of marriage that is sacred to royalty, exclusive to royalty. It's the Morganatic. What do they call it that for, Sally? I don't know, but anyway, it's royal, and royal only. Then we will insist upon it. More, I will compel it. It is Morganatic marriage, or none. That settles it, said Sally, rubbing his hands with delight and it will be the very first in America. 
Alec, it will make Newport sick. Then they fell silent and drifted away upon their dream wings to the far regions of the earth to invite all the crowned heads and their families and provide gratis transportation to them. Chapter 8 During three days the couple walked upon air, with their heads in the clouds. They were but vaguely conscious of their surroundings. They saw all things dimly as through a veil. They were steeped in dreams. Often they did not hear when they were spoken to. They often did not understand when they heard. They answered confusedly or at random. Sally sold molasses by weight, sugar by the yard, and furnished soap when asked for candles. And Alec put the cat in the wash and fed milk to the soiled linen. Everybody was stunned and amazed and went about muttering, What can be the matter with the Fosters? Three days. Then came events. Things had taken a happy turn, and for forty-eight hours Alec's imaginary corner had been booming. Up, up, still up. Cost point was passed. Still up and up and up. Cost point was passed. Still up and up and up. Five points above cost, then ten, fifteen, twenty. Twenty points cold profit on the vast venture now, and Alec's imaginary brokers were shouting frantically by imaginary long distance, Sell, sell, for heaven's sake, sell. She broke the splendid news to Sally, and he too said, Sell, sell, oh, don't make a blunder now, you own the earth. Sell, sell but she set her iron will and lashed it amidships, and said she would hold on for five points more if she died for it. It was a fatal resolve. The very next day came the historic crash, the record crash, the devastating crash, when the bottom fell out of Wall Street, and the whole body of gilt-edged stocks dropped ninety-five points in five hours, and the multimillionaire was seen begging his bread in the Bowery. Alec sternly held her grip and put up as long as she could, but at last there came a call which she was powerless to meet, and her imaginary brokers sold her out. Then, and not till then, the man in her was banished, and the woman in her resumed sway. She put her arms about her husband's neck and wept, saying, I am to blame. Do not forgive me. I cannot bear it. We are paupers. Paupers, and I am so miserable. The weddings will never come off. All that is past. We could not even buy the dentist now. A bitter reproach was on Sally's tongue. I begged you to sell, but you... He did not say it. He had not the heart to add a hurt to that broken and repentant spirit. A nobler thought came to him, and he said, Bear up, my Alec. All is not lost. You really never invested a penny of my uncle's bequest, but only its unmaterialized future. What we have lost was only the incremented harvest from that future by your incomparable financial judgment and sagacity. Cheer up, banish these griefs. We still have the thirty thousand untouched, and with the experience which you have acquired, think of what you will be able to do with it in a couple years. The marriages are not off, they are only postponed. These are blessed words. Alec saw how true they were, and their influence was electric. Her tears ceased to flow, and her great spirit rose to its full stature again. With flashing eye and a grateful heart, and with hand uplifted in pledge and prophecy, she said, 
Now and here I proclaim. But she was interrupted by a visitor. It was the editor and proprietor of the Sagamore. He had happened into Lakeside to pay a duty call upon an obscure grandmother of his who was nearing the end of her pilgrimage, and with the idea of combining business with grief, he had looked up the Fosters, who had been so absorbed in other things for the past four years that they neglected to pay up their subscription. Six dollars due. No visitor could have been more welcome. He would know all about Uncle Tilbury and what his chances might be getting to be cemetery words. They could, of course, ask no questions, for that would squelch the bequest, but they could nibble around on the edge of the subject and hope for results. The scheme did not work. The obtuse editor did not know he was being nibbled at. But at last, chance accomplished what art had failed in. In illustration of something under discussion which required the help of metaphor, the editor said, Land, it's as tough as Tilbury Foster, as we say. It was sudden, and it made the Fosters jump. The editor noticed, and said apologetically, No harm intended, I assure you. It's just a saying, just a joke, you know, nothing of it. Relation of yours? Sally crowded his burning eagerness down, and answered with all the indifference he could assume. I, well, not that I know of, but we've heard of him. The editor was thankful, and resumed his composure. Sally added, Is he, is he, well? Is he well? Why, bless you, he's in Sheol these five years. The Fosters were trembling with grief, though it felt like joy. Sally said, noncommittally and tentatively, Oh, well, such is life, and none can escape. Not even the rich are spared. The editor laughed. If you are including Tilbury, said he, it don't apply. He hadn't a cent. The town had to bury him. The Fosters sat petrified for two minutes, petrified and cold. Then, white-faced and weak-voiced, Sally asked, Is it true? Do you know it to be true? Well, I should say, I was one of the executors. He hadn't anything to leave but a wheelbarrow, and he left that to me. It hadn't any wheel, and wasn't any good. Still, it was something, and so, to square up, I scribbled off a sort of a little obituarial send-off for him, but it got crowded out. The Fosters were not listening. Their cup was full, it could contain no more. They sat with bowed heads, dead to all things but the ache at their hearts. An hour later, still they sat there, bowed, motionless, silent, the visitor long ago gone, they unaware. Then they stirred and lifted their heads wearily, and gazed at each other wistfully, dreamily, dazed. Then presently began to twaddle to each other in a wandering and childish way. At intervals they lapsed into silences, leaving a sentence unfinished, seemingly either unaware of it or losing their way. Sometimes, when they woke out of these silences, they had a dim and transient consciousness that something had happened to their minds. Then, with a dumb and yearning solicitude, they would softly caress each other's hands in mutual compassion and support, as if they would say, I am near you, I will not forsake you, we will bear it together. Somewhere there is a release and forgetfulness, somewhere there is a grave and peace. Be patient, it will not be long." They lived yet two years in mental night, always brooding, 
steeped in vague regrets and melancholy dreams, never speaking. Then release came to both on the same day. Toward the end, the darkness lifted from Sally's ruined mind for a moment, and he said, Vast wealth, acquired by sudden and unwholesome means, is a snare. It did us no good, transient were its feverish pleasures. Yet for its sake we threw away our sweet and simple and happy life. Let others take warning by us. He lay silent a while with closed eyes. Then as the chill of death crept upward toward his heart, and consciousness was fading from his brain, he muttered, Money had brought him misery, and he took his revenge upon us, who had done him no harm. He had his desire. With base and cunning calculation, he left us but thirty thousand, knowing we would try to increase it and ruin our life and break our hearts. Without added expense, he could have left us far above desire of increase, far above the temptation to speculate, and a kinder soul would have done it, but in him was no generous spirit, no pity, no... End of the $30,000 Bequest, Part 2 Recording by Tricia G.